It is our job as kingdom citizens to take hold of the holiness of God with one hand and take hold of the unholiness of this nation with the other and pull with all of our might because we have the message that can give access to unholy people to become citizens of this holy kingdom and citizens of this holy nation. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. This is our fifth week together in a series called Kingdom Citizen. And at the beginning of this series, we learn that upon placing faith in Christ for salvation, believers are granted citizenship in heaven. We've also learned that as dual citizens of both heaven and earth, we have been called a chosen race. Today, we'll hear two more distinguishing marks of a kingdom citizen, and we'll learn how these marks should impact the way that we live. Here's Pastor Trent. If you are a citizen of heaven, that means that not only were you born, but you were reborn. We have a dual citizenship, and we've been studying that in this series. The reason for this series is because of so much of the anxiety that you and I experience when we're watching the headlines and seeing the chaos that's going on in our country and during a political election season. It's like, how are we to process that through the lens of our citizenship in heaven? That's what Philippians chapter three says, that if you are a a born again Christian, then you enjoy this homeland that you've yet to experience. And yet, we're concerned about the the uh, country that we currently live in. We need to learn to process things through our kingdom citizenship. And so we've been looking at a couple of passages. Let me invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. Also find Psalm chapter 2. Put a, put a bookmark or something in Psalm 2. We're going to get there pretty soon. But we're kind of taking the outline of this series from five different descriptions that are given of kingdom citizens in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. As we get started, let's just read this description of these kingdom citizens from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race. Last week, we talked about how we are a chosen race as Christians redeemed by God from all the peoples of the earth, from all tribes and tongues and nations. We're a chosen race that view all other races through the lens of Scripture. We're going to look at the next two description, descriptions of these kingdom citizens. And it says this, again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Did you know that you are a priest? How many of you, that's news to you? I don't see anybody here wearing the little collar or a big hat or swinging any smoke in church. So what does it mean to be a priest? Well, that may be news to you. We're going to find out what it means to live as a priest in an unholy nation, because not only are you a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. Did you know that you are holy? Some of you men have been trying to convince your wives of that for years, and she's yet to be convinced. But this says you, as a citizen of heaven, a citizen of this kingdom, are a royal priesthood 
and a holy nation. And those two terms are tied together in several different places in the scripture. Just by way of introduction, let me show you this Old Testament scripture that is very much parallel to what we just read. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God says this, If you, speaking to the nation of Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, notice, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's why we're grouping them together. They're inseparable throughout the scripture. Now, he was talking to a literal nation, the nation of Israel, which he had chosen among all the nations of the earth. God had established that nation by covenant. He had given them his law. They were to be governed by this law. He established a theocracy. It was the only theocracy God ever established. God himself was king. Sometimes people, when uh, they make accusations against Christians that are trying to involve themselves in leadership or in political elections, they say, well, you're trying to establish a theocracy. No, as Christians, we understand America is not a theocracy. There was only one theocracy. It had a king. His name was Jesus. And we read that he established this nation, Israel, through a holy covenant, and he wanted it to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But as we read through our Old Testament Bibles, we understand that that was a corrupt nation and there were evil kings. And finally, because of their disobedience, their idolatry and their morality, the whole kingdom imploded in on itself. And that was not the end because we read the promises that there is a better king coming. And we know who he is. He's King Jesus. And he is the king of this kingdom of citizens who have been redeemed and purchased by his blood. You, if you're a Christian, are a part of a kingdom of priests and you are a holy nation. So let's talk about these two terms just by way of introduction again. In a minute, we're going to turn our Bibles back over to Psalm 2. Two, and we're going to walk through this in just a minute. But I want you to understand what it means to be a holy nation. And understand this first of all. Um, do you recognize that we, are, we no longer have home-filled advantage in America? Do you understand that? How many of you understand when I've... How many of you ever played on a sports team, and when you went into the visiting court or the visiting field, you recognized there was, there was a lot of pressure on you. There were actually uh, two men that got together. They wrote a book called Scorecasting. And uh, one was a, an economics professor from the University of Chicago. The other one was a sports writer. And they did a scientific study to find out why is it that there is this phenomena called a home field advantage. This is what they found in their research. The home team in baseball wins 54% of the time. The home team in football wins 57% of the time. And the home team in basketball wins 60% of the time. So they found out there really is a home field advantage. Then they did some research to figure out what is going on. Could it be something to do with the players sleeping in their home bed that night? Could it be uh, getting a home-cooked meal? Uh, maybe it's just the, the, the pressure that the fans put on the team, and maybe it helps them throw a ball better or catch it better. Well, they found out that none of that was true, but they found out why there is a home field advantage. You know what it is? It's the refs. 
It's true. It is scientifically proven by the research that the refs give slight advantage to the home team. Now, it's not that the referees are immoral or unethical. They're not trying to favor the home team. It's just simply this. Like you and me, they are human. And they are influenced by momentum and emotion. Now, I used to be a referee. And I found it, I could be the most popular guy or the least popular guy in the building, depending on the call that I made. Well, subconsciously, what they found out is because of the emotion and the pressure of the crowd, they found themselves making just little slight favoritism rulings toward the home team because the home team crowd would cheer or boo based on what they would do. I share that illustration to you because you and I need to understand something. We as Christians used to have a home-filled advantage. No longer do we have a home-filled advantage. As a matter of fact, every day you walk out into this world, you are the visiting team. And you are no longer popular As a matter of fact, it has become something that even those who make the rules and make the rulings, just like the referees, are now ruling against those of us that declare our allegiance to a higher king as kingdom citizens. So we are a holy nation living in an increasingly unholy earthly nation. And so how do we live this out? First of all, let's talk about this word holy here because that's kind of spooky. What does it mean to be holy? Well, of course, we know that that exclusively in its most intense sense belongs to the description of God. It means that he is set apart. It means that he is other. He is not human. And he's not limited by any human characteristic. And he is entirely perfect. There is moral perfection. He is entirely righteous and he is unstained by evil. Anything he does is right. And anything he says is right. That's what makes him holy. Now in scripture, we need to understand that for us, We are called a holy nation. What makes us a holy nation? You could say it in two different ways. First of all, we have a positional holiness. We are holy because God said we are. And God is holy, and whatever God says is holy is holy. That's what we would call a positional holiness. That means that we are not everything that we want to be or one day will be, but because God said it, it's true. We are, as a kingdom citizenship, we are set apart from everything and everyone else and all the things that are going on in this nation. We're set apart by a holy God. We're separated by his designation. We are called out of an unholy nation to be a holy nation. That's what we mean when we say there's a positional holiness that's true. No matter your behavior, no matter your conduct, you're holy. But The Bible also talks about a practical holiness, and that has to do with your behavior. Jesus, in John chapter 17, when he prayed for us, he prayed that we would be sanctified by truth. And then he said, 
Father, your word is truth. And so every time we open our Bibles and every time we hear truth, that is God's way of increasingly making us holy. And when we hear the declarations of God, we change our behavior, we change our language, we change our attitudes so that our behavior can match our description of what God said, a holy people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, you could turn back to it, just the next page there, on, uh, in chapter 1 verse 15, he says this, he who called you is holy. Everybody agree with that? God is holy? He who called you is holy. Also, you must be holy. You said, oh, that's positional. No, it's practical. He says, you must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There is absolutely no room for unholy talk, unholy behavior, and unholy attitudes in a holy nation. And wherever we find it, we've got to crush it because it is inconsistent with who God called us to be. Be holy, for God is holy. And so we're a holy nation. What does it mean to be a nation? We, we think about geopolitical boundaries. Christians don't have geopolitical boundaries. What we have is distinct moral boundaries. And God wants us to stay within those moral boundaries. Listen, we are called out by a holy God. We read and study a holy Bible. We preach a holy message, the gospel. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we are commanded to live holy lives because we are a holy nation. And so it's not enough just to blend in with whatever's going on in your neighborhood or in your school or in your family. We're called out of that to be something distinctly holy. We are a holy nation. That's what we learn. Here's the first descriptor. Here's the, here's the second descriptor of this kingdom citizenship. Not only are we a holy nation, we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. So let's break that down. What does it mean to be royal? What does it mean to have royalty? Well, it typically means that you have a family connection, a blood connection to a king. That's why he says, you are royalty. If you have been redeemed by Christ, Christ is a king, you are in the royal family. You're to be treated as royalty. You're members of his family by blood and by status. Here's another thing it means. You've got access to the family treasure. Whatever Jesus has, by relation, it belongs to you. You're royalty. Did you know that? Some of you are tempted to turn right now to your neighbor and say, I am royalty. Don't do that right now, okay? That, that would be not a good move for you in church, okay? But to believe that and to be indwelled by that truth, I am part of a royal family. But then what about this word priesthood? Now, if you have a background in the Catholic church, you may have had a relationship with someone who is called a priest. If you come from a Jewish background and maybe you've read the Old Testament, you understand that, that the priesthood and the office of priest is all throughout the Old Testament. And so we read our Bibles here. Now listen, when we read 
in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're a royal priesthood, we need to understand some things about that. What that means is this. A priest very simply could be described as someone who represents people before God and represents God before people. A priest is someone who stands in between God who is holy and man who is unholy. Because there can be un, there can be no unholiness in the presence of a holy God. So if you're a thinking person, you should be able to think, how in the world can I, who is stained by sin, I am not holy, how can I even come into the presence of the holiness of God? The answer is you can't and you shouldn't try. For any unholiness to come into the presence of holiness means that whatever is unholy would be incinerated. So don't try it without a priest. That's what we read in the Old Testament. In order for people to have access to God, the holy place, the holy of holies, there had to be a man who was called out by God, designated as a priest, dressed in royal attire, and he was to sanctify himself and cleanse himself. And then only one day out of the year, he could come into the holy of holies and offer sacrifices for the people, representing the cleansing that was necessary for unholiness. And there he would serve God, he would worship God, he would pray to God, representing the entire nation of the people. Not all in the nation were priests. There was only one designated tribe, the Levites, that were to act as the go-between. They were to stand in the gap between holy God and unholy people. Now, do you understand what's happening? When God calls us in the New Testament, we need to understand he's calling us to stand in the gap between the holy nation that we are, the kingdom that we one day will be in fully and completely, and the unholy nation that we currently live in. We are the royal priesthood. And we're the ones that have the message of holiness. It is our job as kingdom citizens to take hold of the holiness of God with one hand and take hold of the unholiness of this nation with the other and pull with all of our might because we have the message that can give access to unholy people to become citizens of this holy kingdom and citizens of this holy nation. You're a priest. You represent the people before God. How do you do that? In prayer, we cry out and ask God to forgive our sin and cleanse our land and heal us and bring us into his holiness once again. And then we stand before an unholy nation and your cubicle and your schoolroom and your factory and you represent God before the people. That's why it's so important that you live a holy life. It's not just what you say, but they should be able to see 
the reflections of holiness because you are a part of a holy nation. So we are a holy nation living in an increasingly unholy earthly nation and we are standing in the gap as a royal priesthood between holiness and unholiness. Now it's important to understand we don't need a priest anymore to gain access to God. There are no more priests. This is where we differ from our Catholic friends. We don't need priests. We don't need priests anymore. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He once for all sacrificed his life as the lamb of God. We sang it earlier so that we could have direct access to God and through his blood and his sacrifice, once for all, we have been cleansed and we can have direct access to God to boldly approach the throne of God in a way that people in the Old Testament never could. We are a holy nation and we are a royal priesthood. That's the introduction. Now, I want you to turn over to Psalm chapter 2, okay? Psalm chapter 2, because Psalm chapter 2 gives us an understanding of how we as a holy nation can live in an unholy nation. Now, I want you to notice here, it's first verse here is even kind of a description of the headlines here. Let's read it beginning in um, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations Rage. Underline that word rage. Anybody ever see on the news any nations raging lately? Any any enraged people in a nation? Well, guess what? It's not new. As a matter of fact, all unholy nations characteristically are raging out of control. Chaos and calamity all around because they have declared war on God. So here's what we're going to learn today. First of all, the nations are raging. Can I get an amen on that? The nations are raging. So how can we as a holy nation live in this raging nation? It goes on in Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What a description of what's going on in our culture even right now. There was a time when there, were, there was a high percentage, who knows the percentage exactly, but a high percentage of people that would identify with Christ, call themselves Christians, and attempt to live a life that was governed by our holy King Jesus. And that was true in America. America was, was founded by many men who proclaimed Christ and, and had seminary degrees. 52 out of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were, were born again Christians and were unapologetic about that. And so we see all kinds of, of religious history and Christian history. You visit Washington DC and you find scripture on the monuments and on the national treasures there because the men that founded our country understood we do not want to declare war on God. But here we are 240 years later and we've watched the progression. We've watched our country go from a, a group of people that believe the gospel to maybe a group that at least respected Christians and respected the mission of the gospel. But then time passed and it's as if they didn't want to respect. They just kind of tolerated Christians and that's fine, you just kind of do your thing over there. 
but it's gone even from tolerating Christians to now hating and raging against Christians and maybe even eliminate this message of Christ, which is so divisive. And it's because the nations have declared war on God and those who are citizens of his kingdom end up bearing the brunt of their rage. So the nations are raging. What are they raging against? Here, here are four things I just kind of thought of as, as we think about. What are, they, what are they raging against? Why are they so upset? Why are they so mad? Well, they are raging against objective truth, transcendent truth, moral boundaries that were given to us outside of time and space by a holy God to say, if you live within these boundaries, you'll be safe. But it's as if no one wants to listen to truth anymore. And now we're living in an age where people even deny the existence of truth and truth can be whatever you want it to be. And we even see that here in the scripture when it says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. It's as if they gather together in boardrooms or, or the halls of Congress or the Oval Office and they scratch their heads and say, what do you think the rules should be? And they're rewriting the rules because they're no longer listening to objective truth. It didn't used to be that way. In 1787, the Constitutional Convention was going on there in Philadelphia and Representatives from the 13 collieries were trying to hammer out the Constitution. What would our rules be? And, and it looked as if the whole union was going to dissolve even before the Constitution was passed. In the midst of the fussing and the fighting and the raging and the arguing, a man named Benjamin Franklin interrupted the convention. And he said this, the longer I live, by the way, he was 81 at the time. The average age, the average age of an adult male that died was 42 at the time. He was 81, and though not a believer himself, this is what he said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Answer, no. No. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, quoting from Psalm 127. And then he said this, I therefore move that prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. You know what he was saying? We're not smart enough to figure this out. We need God. Although America has drifted from a country that was built on Christian values, today it seems that our nation is raging against God. Well, in today's message, Pastor Trent challenged us as kingdom citizens to stand in the gap. By our prayer and through our example, we can display a life of holiness dependent on God. 
Well, I hope you'll join us again next week for the conclusion of today's message. We'd also like to invite you to one of our weekend worship services on one of our two campuses in Granger, Indiana, or St. Joseph, Michigan. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. on our Granger, Indiana campus, and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on our St. Joseph, Michigan campus. For more information about Harvest and for campus locations, visit us online at harvestgranger.org. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus. Thanks for being with us today. And I hope that God's word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. Visit us on the web at harvestgranger.org.